Hello and welcome to this episode of A World to Win. This week, I am talking to Alfie Sterling, who is the Chief Economist at the New Economics Foundation. And we are giving you another episode this week, trialling our new, shorter, more discursive format, where Alfie and I are just going to have a bit of a chat about what is likely to be in the spring statement, which I think by the time this comes out, will already have been announced. So Alfie and I are talking a bit about the cost of living crisis, the case for being able to kind of spend more in order to counter that. And of course, what Alfie would do if he was in our dream world, Chancellor of the Exchequer. So please do share this episode on social media. We are at a world to win pod across all platforms. Please do consider supporting us on Patreon so we can carry on bringing you this in my opinion, excellent content. We are at patreon.com slash a world to win pod. And please let us know what you think about this new format. We had some really positive responses to our episode with Gary Stevenson last week. So keep that feedback rolling in. This episode of A World to Win is brought to you by Haymarket Books, which has a load of great left-wing titles, perfect for listeners like you. One that you might like is Remake the World, Essays, Reflections, Rebellions by Astra Taylor. Astra has appeared on the podcast before. She came on the episode where we were discussing the life and legacy of the late, great David Graeber, who really deeply influenced Astra, particularly on all her writings about inequality and debt and democracy. And she is really an amazing thinker. And that really shines through in this collection of essays. Kianga Yamahata-Taylor has called her the people's public intellectual in praise of the book. You can find this and many more books at haymarketbooks.org, where readers in the UK and US will receive free shipping on orders over £20 or $25, respectively. Hello, I am here with Alfie Sterling of the New Economics Foundation. And we are going to be talking this week about the spring statement in the UK. Now, I know that we have a lot of international listeners. So for those who aren't familiar, this is a kind of mini budget, uh, one of two important fiscal events of the year uh, in the UK. So please excuse us for being somewhat parochial. But I think some of the issues that we discuss today are going to be pretty relevant for a lot of other advanced economies as well. So Alfie, hello. Thank you for joining me. How are you today? Really well. Hi. Thanks for having me on. Can you tell us a bit about what you think is going to be in the budget? And this is always a bit of a kind of part guessing game, part the government have trailed what they expect to put in. So like, what are we expecting, basically? It's worth mentioning, actually, a bit of the kind of backdrop to this is the complete rollercoaster we've had over the last few months in the sense that back in October, Rishi Sunak, that's the chancellor here in the UK, basically made really clear he wanted Wednesday this week to be a non-event. So it would just literally Mm. be a reporting of some public finance data and forecasts. And he really didn't want to get drawn into a whole other budget type scenario. And of course, obviously then, you know, since then things have happened, the world has moved in a massive way. And and actually then we've actually, we've had, you know, a, a whole series of interventions from, from the Chancellor, including at the beginning of February worth about nine billion pounds that are like the size of most normal budgets. So it's been a complete, slightly um, crazy run in as well. But basically the biggest challenge that Sunak faces is the cost of living challenge. Um, and it's not the one that he would want to, it's not the one that he would have set himself. It's not the challenge that he, it's not the question he wants to be answering. He wants to find a way to, you know, drive forward uh, an agenda of, you know, shrinking the state, etc. But I think the way he's going to marry those two 
is to talk about addressing the cost of living through tax cuts. Right. And I think that's going to be the biggest item at this intervention. So whether it's um, you know fuel duty, cutting further there, whether it's um, cutting tax allowances like the personal allowance of income tax, which could be increased, so cutting the cutting income tax for individuals or doing something similar on national insurance, that is likely, I think, to be the main the main thrust of what he does. And I mean, that's just not going to be enough, is it, to kind of tackle the scale of the crisis that we're going into right now? Because, you know, we had Gary Stevenson on last week and he was chatting a lot about, you know, some of the macroeconomic drivers of this inflation, but was also just emphasising this is going to get really, really bad. We're looking at 7 8% inflation, much higher rates of inflation for specific goods. So obviously fuel, but also food, like basic commodities that people need to survive. And tax cuts, which will help some people. And I mean, particularly, we know that like a significant burden of tax is placed upon younger working age people, especially since we've had these changes to national insurance. But for the people who this is going to affect most, which is basically the poorest households, people who are like often living on minimum wage or on universal credit in insecure employment, like tax cuts are not going to go anywhere near far enough to deal with what we're going to see, you know, the um, energy price caps being removed in April and then next winter, people are going to be literally having to choose between heating and eating. Do you think that Rishi Sunak is aware of the scale of this problem and just kind of thinks that his like, yeah, you know, as you say, keeping the state's small agenda post-COVID is more important? Or is it that like the government just doesn't get how bad this is going to be? No, I think that's, completely right that tax cuts won't be enough it's also it's a combination of not enough but also going to the wrong places Mm. Um, I mean the way I think about it is in many ways trying to address you know a national cost of living crisis through tax cuts is like pouring a bucket of water over someone because they're thirsty (laughs) a little bit might get to where it's needed but most will be actively unhelpful um, and certainly won't address the core problem and that's 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 certainly the truth. What, what does does Sunak uh, realise this? I think he's he's asking a slightly different question. He's asking how can he drive through his longer term agenda, which you know as we've been discussing is around a smaller a smaller state and shifting shifting the balance in the economy from public to private sector, but also at the same time as is he doing enough? Is he giving out enough to those voters? that he'll need to rely on in a couple of years' time. So he, he's, I don't think he is, I don't think it's a case of him being unaware mm. uh, of tax cuts being enough. I think he's just answering a different, he's trying to address a different problem, which is how do I shrink the state whilst holding together the right electoral coalition for the next general election? And, and, and arguably, this will work for that. I mean, I think it's now, it's up to counter forces, it's up to progressive voices to make the alternative case and to popularise it. But he, otherwise, he he may well he may well be right making the right electoral calculation. I mean, you just hit the nail on the head there when it comes to the Tories' electoral challenge slash opportunity. I mean, the challenge is maintaining you know their ideological agenda, their commitments to their specific interest groups that support them, and also kind of capital in general, which is, as you say, to kind of keep the state in inverted commas small and this has always been a bit of a myth around neoliberalism it's not actually a small state it's a state that's doing lots of different things but it's a state that's retreated from specific areas of the economy particularly around kind of social security and public services but also making sure that there are enough giveaways to the 
40-ish percent of the electorate that the Conservatives need to hold on to. And also, you know, it's a slightly different electorate now for the Conservatives, given the results of the last election with the changing voting patterns that we've seen in, you know, in inverted commas, the red wall. You know, you may say it might work now, and it potentially could work now, especially if we don't have a kind of opposition that is really taking them to task for failing large chunks of society. But it's also a longer term challenge, isn't it? Because there's only so much you can give away to those groups. Let's say things that they might want around tax cuts, maintaining asset prices, which is something, you know, that you have to balance with the central bank. And that is all kind of brought up with the housing question. Some infrastructure investments, some investment in public services, and also, you know, some action on climate. That's obviously a big priority for some voters. That's not all going to come cheap. And it's kind of contrary to that wider narrative that the state needs to kind of step back and make individuals responsible for their own living standards and, you know, looking after themselves. So do you think it is going to be that easy? No, I don't think it is easy. And this is, I guess this is the the upside or this is the, this is the argument we need to push on. And certainly where I think the existing government are vulnerable because partly people do care about the public realm. People mm. notice waiting times. They notice if trains are too expensive and slow. They notice if they can't find a good care home for elderly relatives or or other sick members of, of, of their family. So people notice the quality of public services. And in the end, all else being equal, if you continue to erode the tax base, you will make it harder to have quality public services in this country. So that's one thing, as you say, I think that will be a challenge. And, you know, the, the Conservatives are seeing this and their answer is, well, let's turn, essentially, let's turn government into National Health Service. Um, and the share of the, NH- of the NHS as a share of all public spending has risen from that sort of mm. 20%, low 20%-ish to the to 30-odd, uh, more than, much more than 30%. But it can only go so far. I think you're completely right. And, th- and the second way I think they're vulnerable is that they may just miscalculate the scale of this problem. It goes back to the yeah. point you were making um, and how many people it's affecting, partly because, you know, it's just as, I mean, it's a problem of all for, for all sides of politics that the conversations and the arguments take place in a bubble. But it's no, it's also true on the right. And actually, they will have they may well not realise just how bad things are getting for so many people. And um, I know you referenced this analysis, I think, uh, last time on the podcast. But you know, it's worth just bearing in mind that um, you know forecasting at the New Economics Foundation showed that come April, if Rishi Sunak doesn't do more, you'll end up with twenty three point four million people in the UK, who will be having to make sacrifices on essential items. So that's not sacrifices on sort of holidays, that's sacrifices on day to day, you know, can they replace clothing? Can they put food on the table? Can they pay their household bills? That's one in three Mm. of all people in the country, it's almost half of all children. And that gets to a critical mass where it begins to affect the mood of the conversation, it begins to affect the political calculus. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And thank you for bringing up that analysis, because that was fascinating. Can you talk a little bit more about what else you found there? Because I know we have this general sense that inflation is going up, food prices are going up, fuel prices are going up. But where is this going to affect people the most? I know the ONS, the last time they did a kind of distributive analysis of um inflationary pressure so where inflation is being felt most was just after the financial crisis and they did find then that it was hurting less well-off households more than better off ones but we haven't had that analysis again so what's your 
what has Neff kind of found about where the specific pressures are going to be, where they're going to be felt, which kinds of households are going to suffer the most? So a couple of things. One is that on the inflation point, part of the problem is that you know, standard measures of inflation tend to track particular items across time and show how those prices change. And so there's a big problem, which is that if items sort of drop out of availability, then it doesn't show up in the inflation statistics. They just, they just, they just fall out of the trend. So to make that less, less obscure, less arbitrary, what I mean, let's say you've got a kind of a essentials food item that's on the supermarket shelf that item could disappear for a few weeks for some, for, you know, for perhaps a, a sourcing reason or supply chain reason. And effectively, everyone that was relying on that, that food item will now have to buy something more expensive. That may not show up in the official measures of inflation. So we know that inflation itself isn't necessarily capturing the, the lived experience of, of prices. But on, on our analysis in particular, actually, I think the, the, over, the, kind of the, the really um, important driver was actually on the income side and i think this is the point that mm, needs to be stressed more which is that a cost of living crisis only becomes a crisis when the cost of living exceeds incomes so it's not enough just to look at the cost side you have to look at what's happened on on, on incomes too and, and of course this is actually the bit where government is much more culpable to put it bluntly you know to an extent prices are outside of their control in the current environment it's a function of global supply chains hitting a bottleneck because in the UK and elsewhere, we're now buying tradable goods much more than we're buying services. And it's put pressure on those supply chains. But the reason why people are then unable to absorb this increase in prices is because, you know, we've had stagnant wage growth for 10, 12 years. We're entering the fourth period of falling real wages in the UK in less than a decade. It's because government has deliberately eroded the income safety net in the UK. If you take the unemployment payment, for example, it is now at its lowest rate in relation to earnings in the UK than it's been since the 1960s. And it's the lowest on some measures of any um, advanced economy in the OECD. So these are deliberate policy choices on the income side that have just meant that this, this sort of crisis was just waiting to happen. That is a really interesting point. And you're right, we're not talking about that nearly enough. There was at the start of this kind of, you know, awareness of this crisis, there was, I know, a few people trying to kind of bring out the old wage price spiral argument. I know the Adam Smith Mm. Institute, I think, um, did some analysis basically saying that the problem that we're going to face is baked in inflationary pressure because prices will go up and then employees will demand wage increases in line with inflation. And that's not what we've seen at all. There has been, I think, some wage increases in particular sectors as well, especially where there have been shortages. But broadly speaking, we've seen wages decline in real terms. And that comes, as you say, on the back of, you know, the decade of wage stagnation that followed the financial crisis and the just kind of chaos that we've seen in labour markets really over the last several years. And as you say, government is culpable on that on a number of fronts. It's not just when it comes to social security, it's also public sector wages being frozen, which is a really strong signal Mm -hmm both to the private sector and also obviously, you know, creates um, certain expectations within labour markets in general. And also, you know, legislation on minimum wage. We did have obviously some increase in the minimum wage under George Osborne, but that has not been enough and it's not um, kind of carried through into this government. And then there's the very obvious point around power, around bargaining power, because the Mm. reason that all these economists were saying, oh, we're in danger of this wage price spiral was because employment was so high, they thought, right, employment is high, the labour market is tight, 
employees have a lot of bargaining power, but they don't have a lot of bargaining power mostly because they're not organised and often they're in very precarious employment where they could just be laid off, as we've just seen with P&O. So what can we actually do? What can the government actually be doing on the income side of things to tackle this problem, if they even want to tackle this problem, which is an open question? Open question. Mm, sure, no, that's completely right. There's a, there's a number of fronts there, and it's, it's that wider labour market environment that has seen you know low-pay, insecure work um, proliferate since 2010. And, and that sort of low-investment environment as well, where because we had a decade of austerity and nobody was that confident in, you know, future demand for their goods and services, everyone was hesitant to invest and decided to, you know, keep cash back, keep workers on on temporary contracts, also they could, you know, be nimble and agile if they needed to be because of an uncertain outlook. And of course that just meant, you know, more zero hours contracts, that meant more um, self employment, etc. And, and of course they've been they've been tax incentives as well to drive people away from employment and into a more precarious forms of work. I mean on just on the PowerPoint, and this speaks to your um, your question as well about what can government do more. I mean, it's worth pointing out that, that these things are, of course, all related and sometimes in ways that, are again, aren't talked about that much. So, for example, often it comes back to the wage price spiral point as well, actually, because and by the way, it's, um, you know, a prerequisite for a wage price spiral is that wages are rising. And that's, yeah. <laughs> that's a bit that's, that's missing. Um, and, you know, wages have fallen back to about 4%, which 4% increase in, in, in nominal wages. And that was completely normal. Uh, before outside of the last decade of stagnant wage growth, um, but this point on 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 power, so it's a it's a tight. Economists talk about tight labour markets, and that being one of the um, preconditions for sustained wage rises, um, and tight in the sense that there are more vacancies, or there's a rise in vacancies relative to the number of people looking for those vacancies. But one way you can achieve this is through the design of your social security system. I think, again, we don't think about income protection as an active lever of labour market policy and of power as much as we should do. Because in the end, at the the kind of crux of the UK problem is that we don't have an issue creating lots of very poor quality work. The issue is that hardly anyone feels able to reject it. Hmm. The unemployed or low paid workers have to compete for the next lousy, the next lousy contract, the next, next lousy fixed term low paid job. And employers don't have to compete for workers, if you were to increase the, the level of payments during periods of unemployment and reduce the conditionality, you would shift that power dynamic, you'd shift that power gradient. And if you allow people to say no and to reject poor quality work, you will then start to see a response in the labour market um, and employ and that, sh- that competition moving from, from workers to employers. Now, there's, there's lots of other ways in which that these power dynamics w- uh, play out as well. But I think that's just an example of where you can do multiple things at once. And that's why we would argue that income safety nets are so crucial, both because of the near term and going back to the conversation about tax cuts, actually the most, most by far and away the most effective way to support people through an incomes crisis, the cost of living crisis is through targeted means tested support. Mm. But also if you change the design of those systems for the long run as well, you shift the, the power dynamics in the labor market as well. This is really interesting. So I think like, when I've spoken to especially younger people and like when you pick up the vibes on like, you know, TikTok among like influencers and whatever, there's this real internalization of this imbalance of power within the labour market and the inability to say no. Because we've got this kind of like hustling culture where it's like, you know, you've got to pick up as many gigs as you possibly can. You've got to constantly be working, like constantly rise and grind, all that sort of stuff. And it's almost become like just accepted 
that you have to do lots of shitty jobs just to be able to get by. And if you don't, you kind of deserve what you get, basically, which is almost nothing. And it just makes it really hard to have the conversation around social security. And I like calling it social security because that's what it is. It's a form of security for everyone and for society as a whole, rather than saying like benefits as though this is some sort of like, you know, handout that is beneficial to one group of people. So I'm just wondering, you know, this is obviously a much more general question about narrative. Like, how do you think we can start talking about social security in a way that frames it as a question of power? Well, I think that's, that is the big, the big question for anyone that wants to see uh, an improved safety net and improved social security system. I mean, I think it is, I think the way to, to grow popularity is partly to talk about how you could use it as part of a wider strategy for pay because I think a lot of people I mean let's be honest with ourselves a big audience here are people who aren't intuitively supportive of income safe nets and one of the reasons why they're not intuitively supportive is because they have stereotypes in their mind of you know deserving and undeserving and so talking about how taking action on safety nets can also drive up work drive up the quality of work um, I think is really important but I think the other uh, part of it and perhaps it's less about power but I think the other part of it is talking about how it's about mitigating risk so you know we don't yeah. you know we, we totally accept that the NHS is there for everyone when they get ill and we don't tend to think about it as a kind of a subsidy for those that are always ill that's yeah. almost like the, the analogue if you like of the sort of perverse logic on the on the welfare side and I think we have to shift the, the debate in that direction we have to talk about this as a it is uh, universal in the sense that anyone can access it when they need it and and this is also backed up by the facts to be honest actually if only a small proportion of those claiming an unemployment uh, benefit at any one point in time or an out-of-work benefit will be on it for a long period it's it's temporary and it's a much larger group of people that are moving in and out of benefits partly because of life events like you know becoming ill um, losing a month's pay then getting behind on the mortgage etc needing support or it's because of going back to the point from earlier, which is just lousy job contracts proliferating in and out of work poverty. But actually, it's a very large extent of people that at some point in their lifetime will need to rely on a system like this. And this is actually becoming a much bigger issue now because we've got a big increase in the number of people who are effectively unable to go back to work, often because they've got long term issues resulting from COVID. So we've got this kind of disability slash long term illness crisis coming down the road as well. That's right. And, and, you know, that's one of the um, the drivers of labour market tightness, going back to the economic jargon, coming out of the pandemic. It is, it is partly people retiring early. It's partly non-UK residents, international migrants not coming back to the UK post-pandemic in the way that we, we might have um, previously hoped. And of course, that's related to Brexit. But it's also increase in long-term, long-term ill health which is getting worse because of an ageing population, but it's been accelerated by by the pandemic and long COVID um, and other other health effects from 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 lockdown. Now, what the, the government, what Rishi Sunak, what Boris is probably going to say in response to all of this is, there's no money left. We spent all the money during the pandemic. We were so generous. We paid all of your wages. We gave loads of money to businesses. And now there is just absolutely no money left in the bank. Now, we've obviously been dealing with this argument for a very long time. Mm. Um, And in some ways, I think people are a bit sick of it. But in some ways, it continues to be very compelling because it is an analogy analogy with how the average person experiences, you know, their finances. It's like you have a certain amount of money and if you spend over that, then you're in trouble. So, you know, how can we start 
responding to this today in a compelling way that isn't too economicy that people can kind of intuitively understand where we're saying actually we're you know investing in our futures here by a protecting people now but also b thinking let's invest in decarbonization so that we're mm. not so dependent upon a couple of deeply authoritarian states for all our energy needs and we can actually decarbonize in the future yeah i mean i think i mean it's worth also noting that obviously to some extent all countries have this problem and this debate to an extent but the uk is an outlier even yeah. even by sort of you know western economies you know in the us in equivalent terms governments spent about 100 billion more a year during the pandemic that's kind of like, you know in uk economy size terms um, than they did in the uk and then you look at kind of you know france and new zealand and their response to the energy price rise goes way beyond what government has done here in terms of you know full full rebates or half you know cutting the price by half half the increase I think I think you need to tackle this point about public debt and borrowing um, and the analogy of the household in in two ways. One is around, as you said, kind of making the positive case for what it's for. So it's, you, no one's actually arguing, kind of you know, let's let's increase debt loads because debt's great. It's mm. it's what we're actually trying to do with that investment. So whether that's you know talking about as you were saying energy security like you know how, how does anyone want to continue this sort of vulnerability and exposure to fossil fuel markets and by extension countries like and regimes like putin's in russia if we want to rebuild our security then that requires investment and, and incidentally it requires the same sort of investment to get to net zero so i think talking about those sort of the positive side in a way that as many people as possible buy into but the other i think is to um bring it back to a conversation about fairness and talk about that in a way in a non-economicy sense that yeah. people can understand. So for example, you know, just, just point out that if you build a hospital and that hospital is going to then, you know, it's going to be, it's going to run for a hundred years uh, or more in terms of the kind of the, the, the structure of that hospital and most of the infrastructure you put in place, you're going to have, you know, several generations are going to benefit from building that hospital and being able to kind of, you know, treat ill health um, and save lives but how can it be therefore fair if the generation that happened to be paying taxes at the point at which the hospital was built has to fork up the entire cost mm. so this idea that actually it's, it's it's um it's not only economically efficient but it's just fair to spread the cost of these sorts of investment through time so that everyone who stands to benefit um, makes a contribution to the initial cost and and the way you do that is public debt that is essentially what it's doing is moving tax receipts through time because rather than forking up all of the taxes in the first year, you borrow and then you steadily uh, finance that debt across time. So I think, I think, I mean, you know, if I had, if I really had the answer, Grace, I guess we wouldn't, we wouldn't be having the conversation. But those are my thoughts, anyway. Yeah, I think there is also like there is perhaps a greater understanding of that point today because I hear now sometimes people saying. Well, you know, the national debt was much higher after the Second World War. And how do we get rid of that? We kind of grew our way out of it. Mm. We invested in building new homes. And that analogy is potentially more potent today because, A, you know, the world is in a position of overt conflict. And B, we've had all these analogies around the pandemic about it being like a war, a crisis on that scale. And I think actually, you know, the cost Mm. of living crisis that we're about to go into may even equal or perhaps even exceed COVID in terms of the human suffering that it causes. So I think there is that that analogy that we can make of like okay we've come together before in the past to invest in building an economy rebuilding an economy in a in the wake of a very significant 
world event. Why can we not do that today again? But mm. yeah, it is obviously very difficult to talk about this because the obvious argument that the right makes is so rooted in, in people's everyday experience. But as you say, we, we will get out there and see what works and try and make this case in a positive way. The last question I want to ask you is a question that I am always asked whenever I go on, you know, any media around mm. like spring statements and budgets. And it's an annoying question, but I'm going to ask you anyway. If you were in charge of the government finances, what would you be announcing tomorrow? I mean, it's it, in some extent, it's entirely... Um uninteresting and in line with everything we've been talking about yeah. which is probably probably three things i'd uh, significantly strengthen our income social security system and the nef's campaigning for a living income so the idea that rather than talking about spending on welfare in respect to sort of reversing previous cuts or temporary uplifts you take a different approach and say how much do people need just to get by on the basics mm. in this country and then setting your minimum income floor with respect to that level and, and then investing in universal credit and other systems to get to that place. So that's number one, start to put in place a living income. Number two would be going back to the energy security point. And if you're kind of helping people in the short term with rising prices by boosting income protection, then I think the long term piece has to be about reducing our reliance on fossil fuels in a way that helps helps families and the most obvious thing you can do there is you know we've got some of the worst housing stock when it comes to energy efficiency in the world or certainly in in, among advanced economies and so we would start with what we're calling a great homes upgrade uh, 11 billion pound investment over the next two to three years retrofitting and installing but uh, alfie that's what jeremy corbyn proposed we couldn't possibly do that it would just be socialism in fairness, your question was, what would I do? <laughs> not not what's going to happen. <laughs> but no, you're, you're, I mean, this is why I say I'm not, I, I, I'm, these are things that I'm sure you yeah. and the listeners are very familiar with. Um, and, and the third, you know, would be on, on the public, on the public service side. I think, because um, it's not all about cash. Actually, there are lots of forms of support that you can build into the system, which doesn't come through the form of handing out cash. It's through the public good you create through provision services. Just, you know, the obvious example is social care. It's still the area, it's in the biggest mess, it's the area that's been cut mm. back. Whereas it also comes back into actually the kind of cost of living crisis insofar as social care workers are among the least well-paid yeah. of any others in the economy. So, you know, a real drive to say, right, we need a universal care service. It's not right that people have to switch switch beds and 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 bankrupt themselves in some in some circumstances. We need to have a, a linked up system that in the end is free at the point of need um, and and lifting pay and standards of the workforce at the same time to help get there. So those would be the three fronts. Uh, and you can't do all of it in one spring statement. It wouldn't all come in through one budget, but there's a lot you could do on all three of those fronts to make a start. Well, I'm sold. I want you to be the chancellor, but maybe that won't happen for a while. Well, yeah, I mean, if you could decide, that would be even more... (laughs) (laughs) Maybe even more scary. (laughs) Yeah, we won't speculate about that. But thank you so much, Alfie. Um, That was a great conversation, and we'll speak to you again soon. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me on.